Chairing this session will be Christopher Blanchard, uh, who's been long a productive uh, member of the policy analysis foreign affairs practitioners uh, in the nation's capital. Uh, his works are must-reading, required, and highly regarded and respected. And because when you deal with uh, policy-making issues, uh, it's unavoidable to factor in the congressional, national legislative uh, reality and processes. And he's in that branch of the U.S. government in the Congressional Research Service that provides analysis based on facts. And as Congressman Ellison said, uh, to be informed and to be thoughtful and to be responsibly knowledgeable about these issues before one votes. Christopher Blanchard. Uh, good morning. Thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony, for that kind introduction. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure uh, how, compared to our distinguished panel here, how long I've been a, a trusted voice on these matters, but I'm happy to be in uh, such uh, distinguished company this morning. Uh, welcome. Uh, this, uh, this panel will be focused on uh, defense cooperation. I, I had the, the pleasure of, of speaking on this panel last year when we were looking forward uh, to uh, try to set the agenda for the, the new administration. Uh, to sort of review issues that were going to be uh, facing the administration as, as it came in. So I'm looking forward to this discussion uh, now that we've, uh, we are nine to ten months in uh, to the administration and, and there's been a, a significant, uh, some significant changes both in the region uh, uh, and in the administration's approach. Uh, in Iraq, the, the U.S. transition uh, continues. Looking forward to the uh, parliamentary elections uh, in January. Uh, the Iraqi security forces continue to develop uh, and reconstitute their capabilities. Uh, the administration is pursuing new strategies of uh, policies of engagement uh, with both with Iran and Syria. Uh, and obviously the engagement on the peace process uh, has been welcomed, uh, I think, by many of the U.S. Arab allies uh, and also embraced uh, uh, by uh, U.S. allies in Israel. Uh, the main focus at the moment, as you all know, uh, is a bit further to the east uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Some very important strategic decisions about to be made uh, by the White House. And obviously, uh, U.S. defense cooperation uh, with many of the Arab states uh, will continue to be pivotal uh, uh, to the success of, of, of the strategic decisions that the Obama administration makes. Dr. Anthony asked me to, to make some very brief comments uh, on uh, the Hill's view of the defense cooperation issue. Uh, I, I should stress that uh, my remarks this morning and also my, my role in the panel is my personal capacity and not necessarily uh, or does not represent uh, the views of the Congressional Research Service. Uh, but I would say, you know, in general, my work has, has led me to the conclusion that uh, despite what we often hear maybe about a rocky relationship with the Hill on, on some of these defense cooperation issues, arms sales, et cetera. Uh, the truth of the matter is that the, the leadership on the Hill and I think the, the majority of opinion continues to recognize the, the value uh, uh, of the defense cooperation relationships that the United States has with its Arab allies, uh, continue to uh, approve uh, uh, the lion's share uh, uh, of proposed uh, arms and service uh, sales uh, to the allies in the region, some uh, $54 billion in agreements, uh, uh, potential agreements from 2001 to 2008. Uh, and the Hill continues to view the issue of defense cooperation through three lenses. Uh, obviously the, the issues that I mentioned above, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Iran's role in the region, and obviously the partnership with Israel and Israel's QME. Uh, issues that I hope that, uh, or I know that our panelists will touch on today, uh, uh, integration uh, in the region, partnerships uh, between the GCC countries, uh, uh, how to address non-conventional threats, uh, including threats from uh, uh, Iran, uh, but also threats such as piracy, proliferation. The transition I addressed in Iraq, uh, the strategic decision, uh, the pivot towards Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, engagement on the peace process, and, and hopefully something that Congressman Ellison mentioned, um, what uh, the administration, the Arab partners, uh, and, and also the Hill can do 
uh, to sort of create more understanding on this, on this important subject. Our first panelist this morning uh, is, is familiar to, to all of you. Uh, he's currently serving as the uh, Executive Vice President uh, for Advanced Technology Systems Company, uh, formerly served as the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Middle East Policy and the Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs, uh, and also uh, long served as the Deputy Director for, Strategic, uh, for Strategy and Plans at United States Central Command. Um, pleased to welcome uh, Brigadier General Mark Kimmett. Chris, well, listen, first, thank you very much for that introduction, but as, as we sort of connived among ourselves, as old generals have a tendency to do, my, my sensing would be more appropriate if we started off with General Hoare. I'm going to cede my time initially to General Hoare because he's going to give a sort of how we got to here, which might be a better way to start this entire session. Thank you, Mark. Uh, what we attempted to do was uh, to prevent the two of us from saying exactly the same thing over the next 10 or 15 <laughs> minutes. And so uh, I'm going to try and, and provide a little bit of a, of a background to all of this and, and uh, what has really been good with respect to defense cooperation, uh, a bumpy road but nonetheless good. And then Mark is going to pick it up and, and talk about uh, the current events in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and where we're headed. Uh, defense cooperation, as you know, is, is not a new issue. Uh, going back to Mr. Roosevelt, uh, the Lend-Lease program is probably one of the best examples of this. And uh, in the wake of the Second World War, as we, we saw the, uh, the communist expansion, uh, we became very involved in assisting friends and allies that were either under pressure from external communist sources or internal subversion. And, and that took place across Europe, Latin America, and of course along the Pacific Rim, uh, with mixed results, I might add. But the, the point is that, that this has been going on for some time. And, and uh, it's, uh, it's probably useful to, to remember that with respect to the Middle East context, in about 1968, the British produced a white paper uh, that said essentially they were going to withdraw from east of Suez. And I remember being in Washington at the time and thinking, boy, we ought to pay the Brits to stay on. This is going to be a big job. And, and I never realized exactly what a big job it turned out to be. And of course, uh, we've been at it in, in a very large way since. And, and perhaps the, the most signal event as we became more enmeshed in the Middle East were the results of the Camp David Accords in which uh, we produced uh, military assistance uh, in a big way to both Israel and to Egypt. $1.3 billion a year for the Egyptians and $1.7 billion a year for the Israelis, which continues to this day. And uh, this is contentious, but in, in various different ways. Uh, the point is that we provided that money for the defense of those two countries. You recall that, that Egypt, as a result of this, uh, had already uh, split their relationship with the Soviet Union, but they were also uh, uh, viewed as an outsider by many other countries in the region uh, for having made peace with Israel. And, and so uh, shortly after that time, we see that Saudi Arabia began to become more involved with, with American equipment. Uh, but what has evolved over the years is, is a defense cooperation that has three separate elements. The first is training. All of our U.S. services are involved to a greater and lesser degree of, of helping with uh, training in other countries. Uh, this may be very simple uh, down at the squad, platoon, company level with, uh, with our army uh, formations. It may involve seamanship, aeronautical ability, uh, but everybody does it. But there's a cost, and so when we when we do this for another company, we expect to be paid for our time and our work. And as, as you know, uh, that can be the handled through foreign military financing, which is money that we give to other countries and they in turn give it back to us for goods and services, or foreign military uh, sales, uh, which of course is the, the national money that is used. The one exception in the training, of course, is the U.S. Army Special Forces uh, troops, who are organized and equipped for foreign training, and as a result, that training uh, does not cost the host country any money. That money is born 
uh, by the, the special forces uh, people. And, and the object of this is that many of our friends around the region are not capable of defending themselves. But within their own capabilities, they need to improve and be able to participate in coalition operations. Uh, the, the second uh, format here, of course, is the sale of equipment. Uh, now, this isn't to say that uh, foreign countries don't make good equipment. Uh, they frequently make excellent equipment. The issue is that uh, we believe that in a coalition context where the United States will be the, the lead uh, uh, organization, as we have seen in several other occasions, uh, that it's important for interoperability that when possible that our friends ought to have the same sort of equipment as we do, that we are able to talk on the radio to one another, uh, that we may have commonality on spare parts and end items and so forth. And, and so um, <clears throat> the, the equipment business is, is important and it is important that U.S. contractors uh, work because it is to the benefit of the United States to sell American equipment uh, abroad. Uh, the final piece of, of this three-legged stool is, of course, professional education, one that is frequently lost in the discussion, but some of us believe it's perhaps the centerpiece of this whole program, uh, which is to take uh, up-and-coming officers from countries around the world and, and provide them opportunities to come with their families to the United States for an academic year to study. And that program over time has evolved so uh, that it's not only a military experience, but it's a cultural experience. Uh, foreign students that come to a war college or to a command staff college uh, are provided a sponsor in class. In many, many parts of the country, they would also have a, a, a family sponsor in the community. Uh, during the academic year, the families travel to Washington, D.C., they visit the Congress, the White House, uh, many of the things that are of, of interest here, they go to New York to see the U.N. and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> My good friend, uh, General Mahaya, who's the Chief of Staff of the Armed Forces in Saudi Arabia, uh, and, and a, a very candid commenter on, on U.S.-Saudi uh, relations, uh, always speaks with, with great fondness of his, of his three tours uh, in the United States, in Alabama and in Texas, and, and the friends that he made in, in, uh, in the communities and people that he still stays in touch with. And this has been my experience throughout the world, uh, that, that the, the top-ranking officers in so many of our friendly countries are people that have attended command and staff or war colleges or uh, equivalent programs someplace in the United States. Uh, now, with respect to, to the countries that we work with, uh, many of them are not always capable of defending themselves, but they must do it in a way, we think, that is consistent with their capabilities and, and their organization. We, we've uh, uh, had a, a, a very rich and, and uh, important relationship with, uh, with the country of Kuwait. A very small country, uh, uh, Iraq has always had irredentist claims on, on, uh, on Kuwait as a result of the, uh, the colonial period after the Ottoman breakup. Uh, that's a very dangerous neighborhood, and, and we got involved big time with Kuwait in the, during the uh, Iraq-Iran War uh, when we reflagged uh, Iraqi uh, tankers and the U.S. Navy provided convoy support as they moved up and down the, the Arab uh, uh, Gulf. Uh, it's interesting, many of you may not realize that the largest naval engagement that was fought since World War II was fought in the Gulf in the late 80s, and uh, uh, Admiral uh, Tony Less, who, who may be here today, was the commander of the, uh, of the, of the Joint Forces. Uh, the, the, the final issue that is most important is, of course, uh, the fact uh, that in uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, uh, that the Arab forces uh, gave a great account of themselves, particularly in, in the Kakshi battle with uh, uh, Prince Khalid bin Sultan as the commander, Guttery forces, uh, uh, the uh, Saudi National Guard forces uh, gave a great account of themselves. Subsequently, in Somalia, uh, GCC countries in Pakistan and, uh, and uh, others in Egypt uh, participated greatly, and, and we, s we see this continuing growth 
uh, with UAE and Jordan uh, currently operating in Afghanistan, and uh, we believe that some of those uh, requirements are going to continue. Uh, this uh, defense cooperation has continued to mature in the, in the Middle East, is becoming more important, and uh, I'm sure that Mark will bring you up to date on what we're doing now with respect to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Mark. Thank you, General Horn. Well, General, thanks for that introduction and that, that historical overview on sort of where we got to today. Now, nine months into the administration, there may be many that think that the new tone and tenor that is taken on by this administration is being helpful, and I would be one to agree as well. But I think it's also as important to recognize that the United States has been heavily involved in this region for the last 60-plus years, and we're going to stay involved in that region for years and years to come. It is not a matter of any particular administration. It is not a matter of any particular president in power. America has a commitment to the Middle East. America has a commitment to its friends and allies in the region. And uh, that will sustain itself for years and years to come. There may be many that suggest that since we are downsizing in Iraq and increasing in Afghanistan, that somehow as we leave Iraq, that we are leaving in the Middle East. Although I am not a member of this administration, I think I'm on pretty firm ground to suggest that even though we are reducing in Iraq, we will still maintain a strong and steady relationship with the countries in the Middle East. Central to that strategic relationship is the defense relationship. There is probably no greater expression of America's involvement in the Middle East on a day-to-day -day basis uh, than the tens and hundreds of thousands of American troops that are operating in that region, some that are operating under combat conditions, and a large number that are operating, as General Horace said, in train and equip and support roles throughout the region. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that today, but it's also, it also may be helpful to go back and just review what America's strategic objectives are in the region. How does CENTCOM, for example, look at the objectives that have been put upon them. What are the defense objectives in the Middle East? Uh, we used to talk about six of them. Obviously, we want to defend and enable our allies from both external and internal threats. Uh, we want to deter adversaries in the region. We want to maintain access to strategic materials and sustain those strategic relationships. We want to defeat terrorism forward. Uh, we want to adapt to new trends and opportunities, and more importantly, we need to always be prepared for what we in the military used to call strategic surprise. Uh, if anybody believes that the Middle East uh, in five years is going to look like the Middle East today, or that we can predict all of the strategic threats and strategic opportunities, I'd love you to be on this panel because I certainly don't have those answers. So with those being our objectives in the Middle East, how, does, how are those defense relationships built in order to sustain those relationships? And I think there are three areas worth noting. Number one is our basing posture in the region. Number two is our security, our, our security assistance programs in the region. And number three are the other defense and economic relationships that Rich Millies will be talking about. First on basing. Uh, again, we all know that we are leaving uh, Iraq or reducing inside of Iraq, but there are still dozens of other locations where U.S. forces either are based or operate uh, with friendly forces in the region to train, to assist, to enable, to equip. That basing posture does much for us. Uh, it would be wonderful if we could influence events in the region from the middle of America. But I think all of us realize if we want to be able to influence uh, events in the region, it is better done if we are in the region. I think, as General Hort talked about, as the British Empire moved out of the region, they lost a significant amount of influence. Uh, the presence of American troops working side by side with our friends in the region, based in the region, not only give us platforms by which to assist our friends and our allies, but also stand as clear warning to those that would threaten our allies. 
So in CENTCOM and in the Defense Department, they go through a normal basing review every couple of years, and I would be tremendously surprised if this administration changes our basing posture uh, in light of any perceived change objectives. If you want to know what America's defense relationship looks like, keep an eye on where we keep our bases over there. The second area to keep an eye on is, as General Hoare mentioned, our security assistance programs, not only our training programs, but our equipping programs as well. Yes, we do have a large amount of those uh, funds and troops going to two countries, Egypt and Israel, but there is still a significant <coughs> amount of training that we give throughout the region. A very good example of a growth area uh, is not only training in classic military relationships and military organizations, but also the work that we are now doing that we had never done before 9-11, helping countries in the region on protecting their homeland, pro providing for homeland defense, an area we call critical energy and critical infrastructure protection. There are a number of countries who are represented here today that have seen a very, very large increase in our assistance, either monetarily or in personnel, to help them maintain and defend and secure their infrastructure. Uh, that, I believe, will be and continues to be a uh, terrorist target, as we've seen in a number of incidents over the past few years. Uh, and giving the countries in the region expertise, equipment, advice, help, uh, partnership in the area of critical energy infrastructure and critical infrastructure protection, uh, the lessons that we have learned in America about infrastructure protection since 9-11 that we can share with our allies and learn from our allies as well. So I believe that type of security assistance is probably the growth area for the future and there might even be a bit of a diminution of the classic security assistance on the defense side. Uh, and then last is the area of robust defense partnerships that Rich Millies will talk about. Uh, let's, be, let's be candid. Uh, General Horace said, it is best to be able for our forces to be interoperable. To Rich Millies and the defense industry, that is what we do. So in between the two lies the truth, which is F-16s, for, for instance. They fly them, we sell them, our air forces can work together uh, for mutual benefit so that if we ever have to take those to war, they are flying our aircraft, they have been trained in our tactics, we know how they operate, they know how we operate. So let me conclude at this point to note that I believe that this administration is taking a new tenor towards the strategic relationships in the Middle East. But, I, but don't confuse the tenor, the tone, the willingness to talk with somehow a change in our strategic objectives as a nation to our friends in the region. We certainly don't see from the outside a change in the defense relationships. We want to assist our friends. We want to protect our friends. We want to defend our friends. We want to learn from our friends. That is the way it's been for the last 65 years. I don't anticipate that that's going to change anytime soon. We are looking for more friends in the region and trying to reduce the number of enemies that we have. I believe that the defense relationships are the clearest expression of the U.S. strategic objective. And I know both on the outside of the government and on the inside of the government, we look forward to continuing those defense relationships with our colleagues, our friends, those that we have fought shoulder to shoulder with in two wars in the last 15 years uh, to maintain the Middle East as an area uh, where independent sovereign countries can continue to grow, continue to be neighbors, continue to be friends. So thank you. Thank you, Mark. Uh, our, our next panelist is uh, Mr. Richard Millis. Uh, he's the Vice President of International Strategy and Business Development with BAE Systems. He's the former Deputy Director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, so he brings a, a wealth of government experience uh, uh, to bear as well. Uh, Richard. Yeah. Uh, well, well, good morning. I'm very pleased to be here uh, with my uh, distinguished panel members on both sides, uh, and I feel kind of like I'm the low guy on the, on the totem pole here in that respect. 
Uh, I'm also a bit uh, humbled when I look out at the audience because uh, my first trip to the region was uh, in the mid-90s, and I've been a regular visitor there for about the last 10 years, but I know when I look out at many of you, uh, you've been going there for uh, 20 years, 30 years, uh, and have made your life's work uh, the, uh, the region, so, uh, so I'm a little bit humbled by that. Um, I have some prepared remarks, but um, Chris has mentioned my background, so I'd be very happy in the Q&A if you want to get into some of the, the, the mechanics of, of how the system works in the U.S. government, we can get into that as well. Um, I'd like to talk to you today uh, in two parts. Uh, one part is factual, one part a little bit more thoughtful, I hope. The factual but shorter part uh, will be the way that industry and government fit together in defense cooperation. The more thoughtful part will explore some of the larger themes that industry sees in the region and how it might approach them. The U.S. defense industry is very much a regulated industry when we talk about cooperation uh, with foreign governments. The Arms Export Control Act is really the foundation, and it is the foundation for, for both the regulation and for the cooperation. And the Act talks about such things as national security, common defense, interoperability, defense cooperation between countries. Notably absent from that is anything about promoting the U.S. defense industry. This is in sharp contrast to those countries that actively promote uh, their exports as a way to boost the industry. And I, and I often have conversations with my colleagues on the British side of the company because their focus, uh, or I should say the focus of their uh, counterpart government agency is a little bit more to promote U.S. or to promote British defense industry as opposed to the United States promoting uh, U.S. industry. So as a result, uh, U.S. defense cooperation decisions are about such things as foreign policy, regional stability, and technology transfer, not about increasing sales. Nevertheless, industry is a willing and a reliable partner with government, and it takes great pains to make sure it is absolutely, and I mean absolutely, aligned with U.S. foreign and national security policy. While U.S. foreign policy does not take into account industry's interests, Industry capabilities are a tool of U.S. foreign policy. As it seeks to promote capability and interoperability amongst its allies, the U.S. government turns to industry to provide the kind of equipment and capabilities to friends and allies that will promote U.S. national security interests. These facts of defense cooperation, however, are part of a much larger story for industry. It goes beyond foreign or military policy. For some companies, international defense business is the proverbial icing on the cake of the domestic order book. For others, it's a defining feature of the culture. So what exactly does industry see when it looks at the Arab world? First, and I don't think anyone should hide from this, it sees opportunity. At a time of economic crisis and stretched defense budgets elsewhere, the Middle East presents a very strong market as countries seek to modernize aging forces and enhance their capability to provide for their own security. But this is not the whole story, and it's far from it. Industry wants to be in the region because the region itself is important. Certainly from a BAE systems perspective, where I work now, we do not see the Arab world as simply somewhere to sell things. We see the region in its wider geostrategic context and believe that being there on the ground Supporting our customers and their aspirations is where we should be. But more than this, industry recognizes many of the challenges faced by all governments in the region. And it is these challenges that will shape industry policies. It would be arrogant to suggest that we fully understand all the regional challenges. But for example, uh, we do see the demographic tidal wave of millions of young people entering the job market each year and the large-scale unemployment up to 25% across the region in 2009, according to the International Labor, the Labor Organization. Industry also recognizes the desire to diversify <coughs> regional economies, away from significant reliance on fossil fuels. The petrochemical industry accounts for roughly half the GDP in Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait, and a fourth in the UAE, largely because of diversification. And let's not forget the challenge of a globalized economy in all its many guises or the potential impact of climate change. And of course, we continue to see security issues across the region from state to non-state actors, terrorism, piracy, ter territorial disputes, and so forth. 
With these many challenges in mind, there's an opportunity to create a mutually beneficial relationship between the defense industry and countries across the Middle East. Industry can provide the investment and technological know-how that promotes host country industrial participation in regional defense programs and services. This in turn diversifies economy, economies, provides jobs for the burgeoning youth populations, and forges a true partnership based on mutual benefit. Companies willing to invest in the region, employing local staff in local facilities for the long term, are seen as go-to suppliers of equipment and services. Industry does not pretend to have the answers to all the challenges, but it can help. Large U.S. corporations have seen the inherent potential in the Arab world as a place to invest. For example, GE has healthcare manufacturing and training facilities in Riyadh and other places in the region, employing more than 1,700 people. Similarly, uh, as you may know, my company, BAE, is supplying 72 fighter aircraft to the Royal Saudi Air Force. Not only is BAE supplying the aircraft, we have committed to having uh, 48 assembled in-country and are building a new final assembly plant to do so. While engaging with the indigenous defense industry is a key part of the supply chain. In doing so, we will create a significant number of highly skilled jobs, and we hope to repeat this kind of activity time and time again where it makes sense for both parties. The defense industry cannot provide employment for all who seek it, but it can go some way to diversifying the economic makeup of Saudi Arabia and allow Saudi Arabia to invest in its own companies and its own capabilities. And some might say that industry is business, not a social welfare agency, and they would be quite right. But I believe that by, by demonstrating commitment and the willingness to invest, industry will benefit in the long run. And again, we come back to mutual benefit. Others may say creating jobs in the Middle East will mean losing jobs in the U.S. Perhaps so, perhaps not. Uh, however, we live in an ever more globalized world, and industry must stand ready to face the challenges that this brings, including the movement of technology across borders. To my mind, the Middle East is not simply a market blindly pursued by a greedy defense industry, although there are plenty of media depictions uh, that would suggest that. Uh, the defense business, like any other business, is a commercial enterprise that seeks to deliver satisfaction to its customers and fair returns to its shareholders. The manner in which it does this is changing, and in my view, that's for the better. Product and promotion are giving way to partnership and participation. But we should ask ourselves, what does a true partnership look like? What does participation mean, and what is its impact? What do we need to do as individuals and organizations to achieve this? And a willingness to engage is key, as is a willingness to accept that answers may not come easily. On reflection, perhaps you should also bear in mind that my views are those of a U.S. citizen representing a Western company. And so there might be the question, do I get it? Are we making the right approach to give our customers in the Arab world what they need? What is needed is dialogue based on trust and commitment. Uh, and I would suggest that who understands better the potential straits or the potential threats in the Strait of Hormuz better? Uh, those who live there and who depend on it, uh, or perhaps a policy wonk who is very, very important in the process, uh, but whose, whose lifeblood does not depend on it. Uh, I think maybe with that, maybe I, I should end and, and let the questions start. Uh, thank you, Richard. We're joined now um, uh, by um, Major General His Excellency uh, Mohammed bin Abdullah bin Muttib al Rahimi uh, from the state of Qatar. Uh, he'll uh, perhaps offer some uh, a regional perspective on some of the issues we've discussed um, and, and give uh, his reaction to, to what we've heard from our panelists. Well, uh, thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Um, here I would like to talk also uh, at the three uh, different issues. Uh, the first of them is the uh, regional security and stability and how to guarantee it. Uh, as you know, uh, since uh, the Soviet Union has disappeared and there is only one country in the world that is ready to and engage and there is a guarantee that it could be engaged at any time with or without the allies to uh, protect or to participate in operation outside. 
the other superpower, they are not at the level of uh, being uh, ready to engage themselves into defense or security agreement, especially with the Gulf region, but with the Arab world as a whole. So what we are facing now, we are facing that there is no global war, but there is regional <coughs> conflict and regional crisis that threaten uh, the region. And it calls onto uh, the superpower, the United States and the allies, plus the uh, countries of the region, uh, the local allies, let's say, to take care about any threats to their stability and security. Our role for the world is to guarantee the uh, production of the oil, to guarantee developments outside and inside the region. Uh, as you know, the Arab world uh, in 1920 was looking fully different from the Arab world we are seeing now. There is a 22 countries now. It was mostly three or four. Uh, population, it's mostly five or six times that we had before. Uh, it was hardly 50 million. Today we are, we are around 300 million. And the incomes, they are uh, in percentage maybe uh, increased by 2,000% or something. So uh, we are talking about a different area that we have to operate and to intervene in. At the same time, what is the strategic important for the world here? Because if there is an engagement from the other side of the Atlantic or from Europe to come and sign a security treaty or defense cooperation treaties with the region, it's a common interest that to protect the strategic resources of the energy for whole the world, including the United States, and at the same time uh, participate in the stability of the region that it is not threatened by an outsider or insider because now we are facing the regional power more than the superpower. Uh, we had also uh, an example when we needed United States to come uh, to uh, free Kuwait. Uh, it was a matter of a coalition and the coalition could not have been raised without having the United States as a major guarant of the stability and security of the region and uh, bringing together all the allies who were not involved directly by military or defense cooperation agreements in the region. And they came by Security Council or by the UN decision or sometime just by the uh, United States own decision to come and to uh, protect uh, the uh, uh, you, the development of the humanity. We are not talking about Kuwait, but we are talking in large now. Uh, a lot of proposals were uh, proposed to the Arab world and the Gulf regions about how to guarantee the stability and security of this region. One of them was not only the defense and security agreement, but there was a proposal came from uh, the Russian uh, Republic, uh, that's the security of the region should be also the responsibility of the regional power. And it looks like uh, the same, like the security and, and cooperation agreement, which was signed in Europe after Versailles. And for sure, they don't want an international guarant or a superpower to guarantee this matter. So it's a big failure, as it was in Europe. Now we have the guarantee, so we can't rely on uh, regional uh, cooperation and security agreement that protect or guarantee the stability within the region because there is a lot of differences between the regional uh, superpower and the country neighboring to each other themselves. So we can't rely on uh, what is called the regional power, especially that there is no big similarity between Indians and Arabs in this case. Uh, so uh, we need always to have this guarantee and to uh, go directly into the cooperation and security and defense agreements, uh, although it has not guaranteed 
the intervention over uh, other countries because within the provisions, there is no guarantees that the involvement is automatic. The involvement needs to go rather to the uh, parliaments or to the head of the state concerned to involve its forces into uh, an operation uh, or into a security and stability operations. So this matter uh, will take us back to the UN system. Because if, if the defense agreements, they are not systematic, that means we need an international uh, resolutions to uh, start uh, the stability and uh, security uh, operations uh, over any areas. Um, I would like also to talk about the agreements themselves because they, they, they have within the provisions three issues as General has rightly said, that is operation training and uh, logistic. Logistic is a provisions of equipment. Um, for sure, uh, to guarantee and continuous physical uh, protections and physical stability and sec security guarantee, we had uh, uh, within the provisions of the agreement something like continuous uh, training and continuous deployments. So we have all the time uh, American forces from one type or another deployed for an exercise or for their own purposes through all the region, including French and British uh, forces who have also signed a defense and uh, security agreement with the Gulf countries, especially and with some with other, uh, of the other Arab countries. So th this is very important to see that we need to have physically forces on the ground. Today there is forces and operations as well. So those forces and operations as well, they show that they are doing their task of protections and a guarantee of security and stability. We are talking also about training, and a training it has two targets. First, the, to qualify the people to use the equipments that they were not existing in the Gulf region or in the Arab world, and they were inquired from the Western uh, uh, productions, uh, productors, sorry. Uh, the other question is how to upgrade the level to enter operability. This question is very important, and some of the Western uh, allies, they see it that not, not realized or not possible to be realized. But this interoperability does not mean that we have to work just as European or American they do, or at the same level. But at least our part of the contingency plans that we have is covered by our forces, and that is very important. Uh, you can't imagine that a force comes from abroad and is engaged in, in a theater without knowing anything about it. So we need also to be trained together, to work together, but to know more in which field we are going to operate. So that was very important within the provisions of the uh, defense agreements. Again, for the uh, provisions of equipments and weapons and ammunition uh, especially, uh, we observe through the last 30 years that it's not going to be for real the same equipment uh, which are provided with the aircrafts or the same kinds of weapons. Now, some of the countries they see when they buy equipment, it has triple purpose. It has interoperable purpose with the international forces that the United States and the Allies, but it has also uh, an image of uh, protections and a show of the force to the neighborhood. That's also it is uh, protected from the neighborhood because sometimes we have three countries or four countries in neighborhood and uh, uh, neighboring each other and they have the same uh, defense agreement with the same country. So how an ally will exert its power to stabilize this without using the diplomatic, only the diplomatic and political intervention. Uh, Okay, thank you very much. On this, I will, I will stop. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Your Excellency. We'll turn now to your questions. Uh, the first uh, being for General Hoare. Uh, from historical and a current perspective, uh, after uh, eight years 
the questioner feels that some of our allies are tiring of the Afghan war and would like your opinion on what kind of alliance would be the most effective in winning that war. Uh, and also is requesting your view of the, uh, the troop increase uh, being proposed uh, and currently considered by the White House. I would say, first of all, that in addition to some of our allies, there are many Americans that are tiring of this war. I think the difficulty here is that uh, uh, the, the current administration is, is faced uh, with a number of years in which uh, Afghanistan was what we would call an economy of force theater. Uh, Iraq got the substantial amount of U.S. attention. When Osama bin Laden was hiding out in the mountains, most of the intelligence assets uh, were looking for weapons of mass destruction uh, uh, in Iraq. And so it, it hadn't received the attention that it deserved. And as a result, uh, matters have gone uh, from bad to worse. Uh, I think with respect to where we are today, uh, a couple of, of issues. Uh, first of all, I think General McChrystal has been put in, in a difficult situation. He has been asked to, uh, to develop an operational plan, operational in the sense that the highest level plan would be strategic, then operational, and then tactical, without the benefit of a strategic plan. And so I think what we've been seeing in the last several weeks is, is an attempt on the part of the White House to develop that strategic plan, which will then be much easier to, to build uh, uh, an objective uh, plan at the operational level. Uh, a couple of thoughts about Afghanistan in general. Uh, this is a country that's just a little bit smaller than the state of Texas. It's got uh, 40,000 villages in it. Uh, it's a country that we could characterize as uh, tribal, uh, largely illiterate in the countryside, and, uh, and corrupt at the, at the top level. And, and the question is, how do we go about dealing uh, with a country this size, and, and what is the, the right uh, strength? Uh, back to the issue of the strategic plan. Uh, before uh, General McChrystal can answer that question, he should be given an idea at what at the national level are the political, economic, and diplomatic issues that are going on in the region. Uh, Pakistan, India, uh, Iran all have a potential role or an active role to play in Afghanistan. And, and uh, we must convince the Pakistanis, number one, that we're not going to abandon them at some time in the future, as we did in 1990. We have to talk to the Indians about their role in Afghanistan, which is perceived as is very destabilizing by the Iraqis. And we, we need to gain uh, some agreement with Iran about how they'll deal with the, the Western sector. Uh, all of this, I should say, is what would the U.S. position be if Osama bin Laden and his pals packed their sea bags and left and went to Yemen or perhaps Somalia or returned to Sudan, what would our view be then of Afghanistan? And I think we should be informed by that. I think that uh, the role in Afghanistan uh, ought to be uh, con considering really what is the importance. My own judgment is the far more important country is Pakistan. If we get the wholehearted uh, support of Pakistan, uh, particularly with respect to Taliban and Al-Qaeda, I think we will have a much better program. And I, I'd like to ask my uh, colleagues here to respond in, in the way, yeah. way you'd like to go. Well, on the first issue about, uh, uh, about patience for the war, uh, I'm going to save you some time. I'm shamelessly going to promote an article I wrote called Losing the War of Exhaustion. In my mind, the, the toughest aspect of Afghanistan going forward will be the President's responsibility and requirement to convince the American people. Americans are tired of war. Uh, nonetheless, we are there. They are doing a strategic review right now. And at the end of that review, the President will have to do, as the previous President did, stand in front of the American people and explain objectives, how we're going to achieve them, and get the American people to rally behind them. People seem to mistake. The, the Russians were not defeated militarily in Afghanistan, nor was the British Empire, nor were the legions of other countries that have gone through there. 
Uh, it's basically that they were defeated, not militarily, but they were defeated at the home front in the sense that they lost the support to continue the prosecution. So the President has a very difficult challenge, and that will be to convince the American people whatever decision he makes with regards to Afghanistan going forward, can he maintain the support of the American people? The worst thing that could possibly happen, as we've seen in our own history, is for good American soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines to be conducting the foreign policy of the United States, military foreign policy of the United States abroad, when it doesn't have the support of the American people at home. With regard to General McChrystal's plan, I think it's always important to recognize that General McChrystal was asked to do an assessment when he arrived, which took him 60 days. That assessment was predicated on the President's announcement in March of what the strategy for Afghanistan was going to be. It was Stan, a very close friend and a classmate of mine, Stan, you're the new commander, here's the new strategy, go out and assess it. He assessed it, he returned his assessment to the White House, but at the same time the White House is now going through a strategic review of the March 23rd plan. I don't say that in criticism, but I'm just suggesting that sometimes we get this whole issue of troop increases conflated. We ought to all take a deep breath, allow the administration to do its strategic review. For those that say, why isn't it being done quick enough, I would remind them that those of us that were involved in the Iraq strategy review, which led to the surge, spent from September of 06 to January of 07 conducting that review until the President made his announcement in Jan early January of 07. That took about five months in total. I think we owe this administration the same amount of time so that they don't rush to failure in their decisions. Uh, so I'm one that supports a good, solid review, and, and at the end of that review, the requirement of the President to have to stand up and defend it in front of the American people. Uh, let me jump in and kind of maybe following a little bit from the thought that, that uh, Mark started uh, in maybe three questions or three, three issues. And I think the first one is uh, what are we trying to do there? What, is, it a, um, is it a question of simply so, it, so Afghanistan cannot be used again as a departure for, uh, for an attack? Is it something more than that? And, and what I find, again, just as a, as a private citizen, uh, is that the debate that is that is going on has I think people have different views as they engage in a debate about that and that's certainly part of the, the strategic review so what's what's the definition of, of success and it gets into how you view this I think the uh, another question maybe to ask is is now when you get into the, to the Taliban and al-Qaeda uh, do you look at them together do you separate them to what degree can you pull in or, or uh, for instance, in the case of the Taliban, can you pull parts of the Taliban in? And then there's been some talk about percentages who are really hardcore. Can you pull some in, pull them into the tent? Do you treat them separately? But I, but I think the question on that, what, how do you look at that? And then I think the, the third thing that has really, in, in the news quite a bit um, lately, is, uh, is the credibility of the Afghan government. And how does that fit into um, to our domestic discussion and, and policy, and certainly when you go to Afghanistan itself, what, what does that mean in terms of the support coming from the people and how are the people viewing that? So while I don't have answers to those questions, I would throw those out as points of departure for, I think, for a discussion of this. Uh, our next question has to do with Iraq. Um, questioner wants to know, what does the panel expect the long-term military presence and relationship uh, of the U.S. to be with Iraq? Uh, and what are the panel's views on the uh, reconstitution of the Iraqi security forces and Iraq's reintegration uh, um, into the, the security balance in the region? Yeah, well, I was part of the negotiating team with the Iraqi government in, in 2008 uh, to negotiate the status of forces agreement. Uh, it was clear that our view was that the United States wanted to uh, reduce its role as part of the, the counterinsurgency, give as much authority over to the Iraqi security forces, uh, but then also maintain a strategic relationship for years to come. Uh, my, my view is what finally came out at the end uh, was a virtually impossible uh, set of requirements, which is all Americans must leave, all American troops must leave, but we want to have a strong security relationship with the United States of America. I find those to be inconsistent um, and 
I, I believe that perhaps after the election in Iraq, that status of forces agreement can be reviewed. Aspirationally, we would like to see a strong, robust relationship with the Iraqi security forces and the Iraqi government in the same way that we have with many countries in the region. Uh, that can't be done virtually. That can't be done from remote control. That can't be done by emails going back and forth. So hopefully this, this requirement that no American troops uh, will be present after uh, the end of 2010, uh, which to my mind also includes uh, embassy security guards, I mean, it, it, it's just at this point a Gordian knot that hopefully this administration in the United States and the next administration in, in Iraq can reconcile. Uh, with regards to the Iraqi security forces, it speaks for itself. They are, they've, got the, they've got the responsibility. The American troops are getting less and less, and coalition troops, less and less of a presence there. The Iraqi security forces have demonstrated that they are capable, both the military and the police, of maintaining a semblance of security uh, in Iraq. I, I think that those, anyone who had been involved working with the Iraqi security forces over the past couple of years, I suspect that there's some people in this room here, have great pride in what was the fact, what were the facts on the ground in 2003 with the fledgling ICDC to a very, very capable military uh, that we see today, primarily focused on internal defense and not a threat to its neighbors, uh, I think has a lot of reason to be proud. Um, I, I can just maybe throw in one comment, and Mark was much closer, I think, from the, from the policy end to it, and, and actually starting with his, with his military career. Uh, I was somewhat involved from the foreign military sales side, and I think if I had to look at um, probably where we started on that and to where we are now, uh, I'm actually very heartened by the by the progress, and I guess that corresponds um, in another way to something that, that uh, that Mark said, because there were times, I think, when I, I was very discouraged at the, um, in terms of getting equipment to the Iraqis, uh, how it was used. Obviously, there was a, a new arrangement in terms of, of a country figuring out how do you do business with the United States. I think where we have come now over these last several years has been a tremendous amount of progress. I think question, one question in my mind is um, as the Iraqis have become trained in the area of, of equipment, do they get the right equipment? Um, and they have their own ideas as to what they want. And we have advice and we give them advice, we, we in terms of the United States. And then the other thing I think is, is uh, how well is that sustained over the long run? So as a country that is a large country, large population, um, and, and, a, and a technically uh, competent po uh, population, do they have the resources and keep the resources running in terms of the military equipment? Um, I know from a business perspective, I'll just say one thing. Uh, I know we and many other companies have been um, involved trying to get a, a relationship, a foothold. And, and I would say one very obvious point, it's a really tough environment to try to, to work in from a, from a business perspective. Um, I, I think that over the long run, I think it's going to work, but it's it's... There's, there's a ways to go. Please. Just a, a couple of words. I, I agree with everything that has been said. Uh, I think there are, and, and I think it's extraordinary uh, that we have done as well as we have when this thing really hit rock bottom a couple of years ago and, and we, we've come forward. Uh, I think the, what the Iraqi leadership is doing is understandable. They want to stand up and be, uh, at least appear to be independent of us. Unfortunately, there are still political and economic issues uh, that are going to have to be addressed, and I think there's still some, uh, some rocky roads ahead, but I, I, I think it's quite extraordinary that we've come as far as we have and have done as well as we have. General Remy, yes, please. please. Well, here also, uh, Iraq was uh, mostly controlled or protected by more than one million soldiers, uh, the police, Royal Gu uh, Republican Guards, and the army. And today, is still, we have to see how Iraq, within or without a military cooperation agreement, will protect itself against the neighbor and protect its own security in and outside. So this matter of number also should be qualified with the quality. But we have to know that the Iraqi army was very much advanced comparing to all other armies in the, in the region at that time, uh, up to th 2003. 
uh, I mean, sorry, up to uh, 1990, uh, it was mostly the top army in the region. Uh, even at that time, there was about one million soldiers on arm. So uh, it's very important to see when we replace an army by another army, which quality of uh, armament they will have, uh, how much support from outside also by a military cooperation agreement or defense cooperation agreement they will have to protect themselves against the others because up till now they, are, they cannot guarantee even the borders. They are busy inside, they have other forces, allies, and uh, under American command also to, 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 to create uh, protection lines on the borders. So uh, this matter should be also discussed before we go that let's withdraw the troop from Iraq. This is an easy, an easy action. The difficult is what's happening after, and you know, uh, there is no worse case for an army than uh, leaving some population at the back. This is very, very dangerous action, and uh, I believe it's not for the time being, at least. Thank you. Perhaps combine two questions here, one on a, a general level and then perhaps a more specific. Uh, General Ramehi, you seem to cast a bit of doubt on the ability of the, the states in the region, particularly in the Gulf, to rely on regional agreements uh, to guarantee security. Um, but what do you and the other panelists see uh, as the, the prospects and, or importance uh, for, for greater uh, defense cooperation between the GCC states, um, either with or without uh, uh, U.S. facilitation? And perhaps a specific application of that. Um, how do you see the desirability of a potential uh, incidence at sea agreement uh, for the Persian Gulf region, something to l limit the likelihood of inadvertent uh, conflict uh, uh, in that region? Well, this uh, will require a lot of effort uh, toward equip equipping and uh, training on the, uh, at least the GCC countries, they are the six Arab countries of the Gulf. Uh, to be upgraded to the level that they can uh, sustain a longer operation. This matter is very important. Uh, they have the equipment now. If you make a quantity calculation, we are superior at the west side of the Gulf than the uh, east side of the Gulf. But at the same time, we need to create also superiority. It's not just the equilibrium. If you like to uh, carry out uh, uh, stability, guarantee for the region. Uh, the GCC countries, they are able to do things, but not, not alone. Uh, they are not the regional uh, uh, security and cooperation agreement I refer to. I refer to a, a wider security and uh, cooperation agreement, which uh, the others, they would like us to, to go and rely on some of the, of the countries that we have big differences with them. We have to rely on the Indian, Pakistani, Irani, and Turkish, and maybe Israel, and that's, I don't, I don't believe that this could work if we don't have an international guarant to guarantee all this. And some of those countries, they, have, they still have differences with the United States and with our allies. So what, what is that uh, agreement which doesn't have and rely on equilibrium, you know, in between the parties? General Kimmett. Yeah, I, I would agree with the general. I, I, that was one of the great conundrums that we have worked for a number of years uh, in the U.S. government, uh, this notion of how do you take very independent, sovereign, proud nations and encourage collective intelligence sharing, collective exchanges over time. I, I think many people in this room are aware of the Gulf Security Dialogue. It's more an opportunity for the United States to lead from behind to encourage uh, this type of uh, performance and cooperation that is being that, that, that I think all of us would recognize would be beneficial and very efficient. Two areas come to mind instantly. Air defense in the region. Obviously if Iran develops a nuclear capability the region would be well served by having a redundant multi-tiered air defense system so that if the Iranians develop it there'd be a small probability of them delivering it. Uh, that type of air defense system is available. I know that many of the countries uh, are talking among themselves to try to develop it, and we, we are encouraged by that progress. I think another area is just simply not, in, not simply an early warning, as we would need in air defense, but intelligence sharing. Clearly, the terrorism and 
nuclear proliferators and, and proliferators in general don't respect national borders. Uh, and in many ways, those borders have to be broken down when it comes to intelligence sharing as well. Uh, there is a lot of information possessed in various centers of excellence, and I think we will see over the years to come that those little center of excellences will stop being stovepipes and start to integrate with each other for the mutual benefit of all the countries in the region. Thank you. I, I think we'll, we'll stop our panel there, uh, right on schedule. Uh, I'd like to, to thank you all for your, your very thoughtful, uh, insightful, uh, uh, expert remarks. Uh, we look forward uh, to uh, uh, our next panel, which will focus on uh, development and education. I'd like to thank the council for the opportunity to chair the panel today. Uh, may, may I make one last comment sure, before we do. depart? Yeah. I, I think it's important before the minister gets off uh, that we not only thank Qatar for being one of the hosts of this effort, as exemplified by many of the things we see here, but, but I think it's also worthy of note and worthy of thanks that Qatar has been one of our strongest supporters. We have thousands of American sailors and airmen operating today inside of Qatar. Qatar continues to be probably the most uh, open hosts of American troops in the Middle East. And I know as a former soldier who spent a lot of time at Al-Udid and Asalea, uh, the the, the hosting that was done by the government of Qatar was just absolutely spectacular, and uh, we thank you for that. Thank you. Again.